Well, good morning. Chad said I could make myself at home, so don't think this is the old man configuration here. I heard Chad uses this. And uh, for about the last uh, at least 18 months at Maple Grove Free Church, I used this because I had a knee replacement and a couple of other body parts uh, that are none of your business um, changed out and, uh, and fixed. Chad said I had, uh, besides teaching, I had one responsibility, and that's to make sure that you are very glad that he comes back next week. And I told him, I could handle that. And then Craig kind of threw me a curve because we were here last week and he had a tie on. And so I thought that's the standard. And so I took out my funeral tie. In Maple Grove, I just, I wear this one out of two times, either weddings or funerals. I have different colored ties so that I don't get the events mixed up. You just sang about one of the passions of your church, all the poor and powerless. And Craig asked me to talk for just a few minutes about what Melody and I are called to do after um, 34 years in pastoral ministry, 21 of them at Maple Grove Free Church, a delight to pastor. You know many people there. We had a wonderful time on September 8th when John Plattick, the new senior pastor, and I sat on two stools And we handed off a baton and we blessed each other in the name of the Lord and went in different parts of the harvest field. And I think that's how leadership in the church ought to transition. We've got to find a better way to do it rather than tearing churches apart when we change senior leadership. But I'm so glad for the passion that you have through Covenant Kids Congo to reach those who are poor and powerless, and that's who Melody and I are called to reach when the divorce decision is on the table. And spouses say, I think it's over. And the attorney says, I think it's over. And some of your close friends say, I think it's over. And your mother-in-law, for goodness sake, even says, I think it's over. And I want you to know today, it's not over till God says it's over. And when they rolled a stone across the open tomb, everyone said it's over, except God. And we know that there are times when divorces are so painfully and unfortunately necessary because one person decides, I will not. I don't know if you're aware of this, that in 2008, Judge Bruce Peterson and um, Bill Doherty at the University of Minnesota surveyed 2,300 divorcing parents in Hennepin County. 10% of them said, neither of us wanted the divorce. We did not know what else to do. And another 30% had an extremely hopeful spouse that was looking for reconciliation help and couldn't find it. That's who Melody and I are called to equip you as a church to reach. And some of those people sit here. And some of those people are your neighbors. And they are poor and powerless because no one, no one is saying to them, 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what has happened in your life. With God, there's always a second chance. So if you're interested in praying for our ministry, there are some brochures by the coffee. If you're not interested in the ministry, use it as a, um, a desk blotter or something. But I know that you will want to pray for us. I find very few people whose lives have not been touched by the pain of divorce. Well, if you open your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 73... When Chad asked me to speak, I, um, I was hoping he would say, Russ, preach on whatever you want, because then you pull your best sermon out of the drawer, you rearrange a couple of illustrations, and then you know you've got a bullet in your gun that'll fire. And he said, pick from these three psalms, all of which I had never preached before. And I said, thank you, my brother. But you can open your Bible or you can use the Bible in front of you, page 575. Just a couple of um, remarks. C.S. Lewis said, remember that the Psalms are poetry. They're not even really supposed to be preached. They're supposed to be sung. But my voice is a little off this morning, so I won't be singing it to you. The book of Psalm was called the hymn book of Israel. These are expressions of the heart, and the author, Asaph, is pouring out his heart before God about justice. But he's wrestling with God, and it's not a theological treatise on the problem of evil. In fact, Asaph is going to take us through a look at the progression of of how do I get from the place where I really care about the poor and the powerless to the place where I just care about me. I just care about personal justice. And I take my eyes off of the world and I turn them inward. How does that happen? And Tudor did such a wonderful uh, job. I, what a wonderful message last week. I hope, uh, I hope I can follow in that footstep. So let's just ask the Lord for help because the servant of God opening the word always needs the Lord of the word to stand forth from the written word. God, you know there are times our souls are asleep. We're so easily awakened to personal injustice and to injury and to insult and to disappointment and we so easily sleep through seasons when by your spirit you are moving to release the justice that your heart longs to pour out on this world. Would you use this psalm this morning to help us? In Christ's name, amen. Awaken my soul to justice, but what kind of justice? Let me suggest a couple of categories just to kind of get your mind Going, There is uh, the kind of justice that you and I start to feel when you see bad stuff happening in the world. And there's plenty of human tragedies to go around. Children without water is a tragedy, is it not? Earthquakes in China where tens of thousands of people step out into eternity in their sleep because of a mudslide or an earthquake. Those are terrible things, are they not? 
So the question is, how can God let this happen? It's one of the major roadblocks to many people to, when they think about embracing the Christian faith. They cannot wrap their mind around a God who is either powerless to stop it or not loving enough to have created a situation where it wouldn't have happened in the first place. Then there's the kind of justice when bad stuff happens to others in our lives. Some of our close friends get treated badly. We ask the question, why do people get away with that? How can that happen? You've seen the posters around Maple Grove. I know that you have. One of our former elders' wife was killed in a hit-and-run accident in front of the hockey rink a number of years ago. Somebody did it, and people saw it. The place was filled with people. And for the last 10-plus years, someone in this community knows who killed Becky. And it's not fair. It's not fair. So there's that kind of justice that kind of wells up in us. God, you need to do something. How can people get away with that when it happens to people we care about? And then this last kind of justice that is sort of what Asaph is struggling with. When bad stuff happens to me, why am I suffering as a Christian? Why does God let bad things happen to good people like me? I don't know if you remember, but this past June in Zephyr Hills, Florida, an 86-year-old woman went into a store, I think a convenience store, and bought a lottery ticket. Like $156 million. I started to pray, Oh Lord, let me find her phone number. We're going into a support ministry. I can help her. She's never going to live long enough to spend all of that money. She ends up splitting it with her son. But in the news article describing it, there was a man who was standing in front of her who, wanting to defer to this very kind elderly woman, said, why don't you go first? He was also going to buy a lottery ticket. And if he was a believer, God, how could you do that? I could have tithed off of that. Just a little footnote. There are people who think, God, if I was just rich, then I would become generous. That's a lie. If you are not generous now with what God has entrusted to you, millions of dollars will not make you generous. Albert Schweitzer once said, if you have something that you cannot give away, you do not own it, it owns you. And money has that capacity. Somebody said, I know that money does not buy happiness, but it sure makes misery a lot easier to live with. So let's look at the scripture and let's unpack Asaph's struggle. Asaph is awake, very much alive to petty justice, but he's very much asleep to God's justice. Now what I want you to know that and I'm, I'm sure this has already been unpacked for you, but when the Bible talks about God's righteous judgment, uh, justice, it's not just about judgment. 
God's justice is also the proclamation of what the kingdom brings. It is both good and bad. It is both provision and punishment. Think about when a person stands in front of Judge Judy. And they want what? Justice. And her decision, as imperfect as it is, usually does what? It brings something that someone really wants, a blessing, and it takes away something from someone else who's brought a complaint. Here are four steps to awaken your heart to God's justice. Let's look at the text. First one is recognize where you are. Listen uh, to Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, just remembering that this is poetry, there's a juxtaposition between the God who is good to Israel and the prosperity of the wicked. And a little bit farther down, Asaph is going to say, where I was heading, where I was slipping toward, was really believing it does not pay to be a believer. It just doesn't. Because I pray, I serve, I even serve in the children's ministry. And I would be the person in back of that woman who passed up the lottery ticket. God does not seem to come through for me. And the things that are in juxtaposition here is God is good to Israel or the prosperity of the wicked. And you and I have to choose today. We have to choose who our sufficiency is in. Do we really believe that God is good and righteous and holy and providing all that we need? Or are we thinking that if I sort of took things under my own, I would be able to look like some of these people that do not give God a second glance and their life looks great? Notice what he says in verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, Jump down to verses 13 and 14. Here's his complaint. Surely I have kept my, in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I have been punished every morning. He is starting to lose it, folks. He's starting to lose it. And he does not recognize until the end of the psalm where he is. It's interesting, this first part of the psalm starts off, but as for me, and it's going to end up, but as for me, it's just good to humbly be close to God. We are wrestling with this. That's the place you want to end up. Amen? The first step, to awakening your heart to God's justice is recognizing what's going on in your life right now. An honest assessment of how you feel. Are you jealous of the wicked? Would you exchange your life as a Christ follower for someone who did not know God if your life could be easier? Are you that consumed with personal injustice to you? Does it feel that unfair to you to be a Christian? 
You start to believe it doesn't pay to believe. You get clobbered anyway. Purity of heart and purity of hands is a waste of time because it does not protect you, it seems, from hard times or from difficult people. Being focused on petty justice deadens us to God's righteous justice and the real needs of other people. Because while I'm obsessing over my insults and over the things that did not go right for me, guess what? I am very much awake to my own sense of it's not fair. Turn to someone and say, it's not fair. Now turn to that person and say, get over it. Life's not fair. Being focused on petty justice for you deadens you to God's righteous justice and the needs of other people. So how does a person get here? How did Asaph get here? One of the ways that you know you are sliding toward this position is you have a nagging sense in your life that God somehow has let you down. It oftentimes comes in the form of unanswered prayer. I prayed and nothing happened. It's funny, in evangelical circles, we have this little running agreement with God that strangely God never agreed to. God, I pray, you listen. I want, you provide. God, if I do for you, then I expect you to do for me. Really, God, really. I'm on my knees praying for the health of my daughter in the University of Minnesota Hospital. And all the time you are running the planets, keeping them from bumping into each other, you couldn't find time to release healing into the life of my daughter. Really, God? Really, God, you know how I love my church and you couldn't have protected me from that personal clash with someone that made me feel uncomfortable and now I've got to look for another church. Really, God, you couldn't have orchestrated that a little bit better? You know I've been out of work. You know we have financial needs. God, we've been praying and praying and praying and praying. And it just feels like ASAP. It doesn't matter that I've kept my heart pure. It doesn't matter. That's oftentimes the springboard toward being focused on the personal injustices that come to all of us because, are you sitting down? We live in a fallen world. Why would you and I expect to get a pass in this world that is conditioned and battered by sin. Why would you and I as Christ followers feel like we're going to skate through this? Asaph needed to recognize where he was. And he needed to be honest. Secondly, he needed to reorient his thinking. Look at verses 4 through 20. Oh yeah, I know the wicked. God, just in case you've forgotten, let me tell you what those people are like that you seem to be answering prayers for. Verse 4, they have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. And they know it. Verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts come iniquity. From evil conceits of their mind knows no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven. They're big talkers. They talk about things in heaven they don't know about. They claim to be able to organize what happens in heaven and what happens on earth. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Verse 10, therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, God, in case you've forgotten. They are always carefree. They always increase in wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. In vain, I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been plagued. Every, <clears throat> I have been punished every morning. Do you hear his distorted thinking? Distorted thinking in two different ways. First of all, is he really punished every morning? Really? You woke up this morning. Who gave you the grace to breathe? Who always saw your life through the night when you had no volitional control over anything? You were on autopilot. You're here this morning. Every day you get punished. Are the wicked really like that? Are they always wealthy? Are they always healthy? Notice the extremes that he goes. It's pointing out his distorted thinking. And so he is so focused on himself, he cannot even really see other people clearly. He can't see the needs of others. In Matthew chapter 9, the disciples were, um, were about ministry. Everyone was busy. And all of a sudden, Jesus is off to the side, and he's overlooking the masses. And in Matthew 9, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw through the exterior. He saw through the laughter. He saw to the need of their heart that they were hopeless and harassed. And when you're focused on yourself, you don't see people truly because you haven't reoriented your thinking around what's really real in people's lives. Jesus did this in Luke chapter 7 when a a sinful woman came into um, Simon's house and there was a banquet. Jesus was supposed to be, you know how this is. You invite someone, you know, it's like if you, you, you haven't done it, but if you invited Melody and I over for dinner uh, this afternoon, I know you haven't done it yet, but if you were going to invite us over for dinner, it'd be a big deal, guest preacher, all this kind of stuff. Run home, set the table, you know, go to Famous Dave's, bring home some home-cooked meal. And for you, because you went out of your way, it's all about this. It's all about the moment. And will Russ and Mel, you know, will they invite you to be part of their prayer ministry? Or, you know, will they invite you to be part of what God's doing And it's all a big deal. And Simon was just all until this woman came in who began to anoint Jesus. And she was weeping so hard, she washed his feet with her hair. And there was this 
incensed thing about who in the world let this woman in here. You've got to be kidding me. And then Jesus has a very interesting conversation. He talks to Simon about forgiveness, and then he says, Simon, and this is just, the, the, the text is just so ironic. He's talking to Jesus. The woman is totally embarrassed. She's standing here in the middle of the whole conversation. So finally, after he gets done with his little um, lecture to Simon, he says this, do you see this woman? Of course I saw her. She came in uninvited. She ruined the whole dinner. No. Simon, did you really see her? Did you really see her? Or were you so filled with the petty injustice of an interrupted dinner party that you could not have imagined this woman loves much because she understands she's been forgiven much? Simon, did you even see that? And he couldn't. He couldn't, like Asaph, he couldn't. He needed to reorient his thinking. No one is always free. No one is always healthy. The stats on death are amazing. One out of every one person dies. The great theologian Woody Allen once said, I am not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. This morning, you need to know you will be there when it happens. It's appointed unto men and women once to die and after death the judgment. That is set. I don't know if you have that appointment on your calendar yet. But you and I need to reorient our thinking to focus on the things that are eternal, not temporal. Look at verse 17. I was fussing and obsessing over all of this. Start with verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed our children. He, Asaph's wise enough to know that every thought that comes into his head shouldn't come out of his mouth. Amen? There are some things that go through your mind that are much better left unsaid. I don't know if you've had any success at getting toothpaste back in the tube once it's squeezed out. Verse 15, if I had spoke thus, I would have betrayed our children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Write it down somewhere. It is useless to try to understand your life by comparing it to someone else's. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, he um, makes one of the characters in the Narnian Chronicles who asks about the scars on one of the other Uh, characters. And Aslan says, I tell no one anyone's story but their own. If you happen to have friends who have got your particular misery all figured out, can I just tell you they're wrong? They're wrong. They do not know. They may be well-intentioned. They may be like Job's friends. They may try to give you godly counsel, but listen to me. The only person who is going to tell you how to figure out your own life is the one who brought you into this world. Everyone else is guessing. 
And so even Asaph, when he's trying to get his mind around all he said, it's oppressive to me. I cannot figure out why God would do this. And the answer is, stop figuring it out, Asaph. Just get close to God. And notice what happens at the end of verse 17. Until I enter the sanctuary of God, and then I understood what? Say it with me. Good morning. I can do this because I'm never going to get invited back, so I might as well take advantage of it. I understood their what? Their final destiny. All the misconceptions I can have about people who are far from God. All of the things I can dream about that they have that I don't have. All the ways in which I can be wrong. When you get close to God, God says, okay, I'm not even going to take the time to straighten your mind out. Listen to me. They are without me. What is their eternal destiny? What's their eternal destiny? This is a very sobering thought, men and women and young people. The book of Romans tells us in the early chapters that every mouth will be stopped and made silent before God. No one is going to be able to stand before God and say, you were not fair, you were not loving, you were not kind, you were not sovereign in my life. Paul says the whole world will be held accountable to God and every mouth with an excuse will be stopped. And what that means in terms of their final destiny is this. One day, heaven and hell will be fully populated and everyone will be in the right place. No one will be in any of those two eternal destinies by accident. And when God began to impress that upon Asaph, he said, when I began to understand, would I trade the comforts of this world for being close to God? Now and for all of eternity, would I trade that? Is that really what I'm saying, God? It doesn't pay to keep my heart pure before you? Is that really what I'm saying? So that goes back to that thing in the first part of the first three verses. Oh, surely God's been good to Israel. Yeah, we all believe that. Let's cheer on that. But as for me, I started to envy those whose eternal destiny was being separated from God. And Asaph goes, I, I almost, his heart is pounding fast. my feet almost slipped. I almost lost my grip. I almost became like that person who would be willing to trade the comforts and the prosperity of this world for the security of belonging to God in this life and in the next. And so he has to reorient his thinking. Here's the third thing that will help us awaken our soul to true justice. Look at verses 21 through 24. Remember God's grace to you. When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Look at verse 23. Yet... God, even when I was upset with you, even when I was obsessed with my own comfort, even when I was feeling so personally um, the target of injustice, 
and my eyes were closed to the real needs and the real destiny of other people, even then, God, you did not cast me out. What did you do? Verse 23, yet I am always with you. God, you never left me. You always hold me by your right hand. God, you never let me go. God, in the midst of my complaining and in the midst of my moving away, you guided me with your counsel. And I know that afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? You and I need to remember God's grace to us. In the midst of that, God didn't cast off Asaph. In the midst of his complaining. You see, the thing that helps us refocus our life to look outward to the need for justice and the need meeting of others outside of ourselves. The reason we extend ourselves to give grace and to run a marathon, that's, that part's insane. I don't get that part. I, Mel and I did an inline marathon like 10 years ago with, on rollerblades, and it was from like two harbors to Duluth, and it was all downhill. It was just great. It's just, it, it took me a day and a half, but I made it. You just stand still and hold your windbreaker open. You'll get there. You'll get there. God has been good to you and me, and the reason that we give grace, the reason that we sacrifice, the reason that we forgive is because we have been, say it with me, forgiven. Look with me just for a moment at this... um, Rem, it's a little bit hard to see. The, the, the slide wasn't so great. This is Rem, Rembrandt's um, Return of the Prodigal, about 1600. I'm not a real big art person, but I use this all the time in counseling. I led a couple to the Lord, reading them Luke 15 and showing them this picture and telling them this. In our life, in every season of your life, at every moment of your life, you and I are one of three people. We are like the father giving grace. We are like the rebel receiving grace. Or we are like the older brother withholding grace. And the reason we need to look outward to those who are poor and powerless is because Paul tells us in Ephesians that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us when we were powerless. He was our portion. He was our Savior. When we had need, He was our provider. We have been graced, so we give grace. We've been forgiven, so we give forgiveness. We need to remember God's grace to us. Remember what you and I have received. You just think about it today. Think about the incredible thing your church is doing. You're bringing clean water to children that may have never in their life known the refreshment of uncontaminated water. You and I will go home, and if you go to a restaurant, you'll down five or six glasses of Maple Grove filtered, purified water with ice cubes that don't leave the little white things in the bottom. You and I have been blessed. We have been graced. Therefore, we give. Therefore, we look outward. 
Remember God's grace to you. If you want to wake up, recognize where you are. Start to reorient your thinking. Remember God's grace to you. And then lastly, respond with praise. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, regardless of what the wicked seem to have. This is what you and I must begin to put into our theology of contentment. If God is our portion, we suddenly become free to sacrifice for others. What is one of the main reasons people are not radically generous on behalf of the poor and the powerless? If we could speak truthfully, is it not because down deep, we are afraid if we give away too much, what will happen? We won't have enough for who? Say it with me. For me. I'm going to run out. And so we often tend to pull our sense of justice and, and aligning with God's justice and being out delivering the impact of the kingdom through the church. Because there's this little thing in the back of our mind that says, oh, be careful, hang on, you can give too much. That evaporates when you praise him. Verse 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Verse 28. But as for me, now his feet aren't slipping. He's made it all the way back to solid ground. As for me, God, it's just good to be near you. And I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will let my heart rest in him. And I will tell of all of your deeds. Here are some of the takeaways. If we want to awaken our heart to justice, we need to consciously trust in God's sovereign justice and give up trying to get even. Secondly, we need to walk in humility and stop talking with entitlement language about what we didn't get and what we should have had. The fact that you and I drew a breath this morning means that God has been infinitely gracious to us. Everything else on top of that is mercy. And thirdly, we should commit to spread the righteous justice of Jesus Christ, standing up and standing by the poor. Isaiah 58, Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loosen the chains of injustice? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. This is exactly what Jesus said when he picked up the scroll of Isaiah and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and this phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
That's our job. And as we proclaim it, to physically, relationally, spiritually, material, take the evidence of God's presence and his grace and provision to those who desperately need it. Why? Because it is a bridge over which the gospel can travel. And men and women, it is a bridge over which the gospel makes sense. That's why Mel and I wade into some of the messiest situations in couples' lives. Why? Because when we can point them to the hope of the gospel, guess what? If they don't know Christ, they are very interested in this God of hope. That's what you and I are doing when we awaken our soul to justice and we ask God to deaden our soul to those petty personal things that make our lives all about us. And it frees us to be given away to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Let's close in prayer together. Father God, would you take your word to awaken our heart, not only to your grace and mercy, but to what you want to do in us and through us, that we who have received grace might give grace, we who have received forgiveness might give forgiveness. And Father, even as we receive this offering, even as we give to the ministry of this church and beyond, would you fill our heart with joy to know Whatever our situation today, you are our portion. Free us to see beyond our own needs to the desperate needs of others that we might bring your heart joy as the people of God. For it's in your name we pray.